what I have taken from all of this is, and the way I take all of life is, particularly the, the hard times, every event has presented me with opportunities for growth, expanding my awareness. I've always been able to pull something positive out of it. I've always been able to climb out of it. It's never really beaten me down. Hi, I'm Catherine. I love hearing people's stories. I always have. In 2021, an idea came to me to talk to 10 people I didn't know about a meaningful day in their life. I posted the idea to my neighborhood's Facebook page and connected with 11 people who were willing to share. We met in one of our homes, and these are those conversations. For me, when I hear someone's personal experience, I understand them better. I feel connected to them through common ground or a common feeling, and I always and inevitably learn something from them that helps me in my own life. I don't know what you'll find in these conversations, but I hope it's something good. I'm so grateful all around to everyone who participated, and now to you for listening. I truly hope you enjoy. Let's jump right in. Today's conversation is with Mary Catherine. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. If you could just tell me your name and what you're here to talk about, and we'll just get started from there. My name is Mary Catherine, and I'm trying to think how long it had started, the AIDS epidemic. So your brother passed from AIDS. Yes. And we're going to talk about that and how that changed your life. Yes. Um, he died in 89. He was diagnosed in 88. Probably when I became aware of AIDS was maybe one or two years before. And I just always felt like he was eventually going to fall to it. So when we did find out that he had it, he actually did not live very long. And, and he found out he had always been a blood donor. And that's how he found out was the Red Cross came back to him and told him. And at the time he was diagnosed, his T-cell count, I don't remember the exact what it was, but it was so incredibly low, which meant that he was already way into it. He actually spent more time in the hospital than out between May of 88 in January when he died, then, you know, at home, he, God, he had, he developed tuberculosis. Mm. I guess they got it under control. And the thing that ultimately did him in was he developed blastomycosis, which is something that we're all exposed to in the dirt. You know, if you garden it all, you may end up with it, but you fight it off, but he couldn't. But anyhow, he was 34 years old, and at the um, funeral home, I was at one end of, of the room telling everybody that what he had died from, and my parents were at the other end of the room telling everybody that he just died from pneumonia. I think they had a hard time well, coming to terms with what he had died from. It, you know, it was totally different in 89. People were not as accepting. When my parents ultimately sold that house, they did not tell anybody what he had had because they were afraid that it would affect the sale of the house. He didn't die at home, he died in a hospital, but it was just such a stigma. And that had a really big impact on you and your family. You know, I accepted it. I, I have wondered 
over and over what our relationship would be like today had he lived. You know, we had, you know, like I said, a contentious relationship when we were younger, but I feel certain that it probably would have evened out, you know, as we aged. And actually, I think he would have been the one ending up taking care of my parents. Well, let's back up a little bit. So you were the oldest in your family. Mm -hmm. Do you just want to tell us about your family and how you grew up and your brother, what it was like growing up with him? I, I was born in Indiana. We moved to Tennessee, actually, when I was 10. Well, nine. I turned 10 the next year. I just remember when he was born feeling dethroned. I felt like he could do no wrong in the eyes of my parents. And people parented different back then than they do now. My parents constantly compared me to other people. You know, why can't you act more like so-and-so? Which is very difficult for a child to deal with. And so anyhow, that's what I contended with a whole lot. And he was the one who was perfect and I was not. And it just made me angrier and angrier. So we had that between us growing up. How much younger than you? He was three years younger than I was. That was, that was the bone between us always was, I was angry because he was the favored child. They thought he hung the moon and I was just trouble. So anyhow. But do you know why was it, was it that he was the first boy or was it, was his personality just closer to that of your parents? I don't really know. I was always really bright. I would push back. And as I got older, I really hated being controlled, you know, all the time. There was a lot of dysfunction in the house between my parents and not a lot of good modeling. There was just a lot of dysfunction that I grew up in. How old were you when you left home? I was originally, the first time I left home, I guess was when I went to MTSU. Mm -hmm. I moved out. And I was only there for about a year. I had a boyfriend who was actually in the army and had gone to Germany. And we decided we wanted to get married and I was gonna go over there. It didn't take me very long after I got there that I realized I was not gonna marry him, but I stayed. I was there for almost a year. Wow, what changed your mind? I actually got involved with somebody else, <laughs> which, I, you know, it was the 70s, what can I say? That lasted, well, I was ready to come home after a year, basically. So when you came back home, did you move back in with your family? I did, for just a short period of time. And then um, moved out into an apartment with a former college roommate. Do you remember, did you spend time with Rob during that time? Did you talk to him about what's going on in your life? Or Oh, no. We never had that kind of intimacy at all. We weren't that close. He was just... He was just your brother? He was just my brother. He was just in the house. How would you describe him? What was his personality like? He actually, I, I would say he was very anxious also. I don't think he ever totally accepted his own homosexuality in himself, mm -hmm. which is kind of sad, you know. It was just a weird period in society, and I think that due to the fact that my parents knew, but they never totally accepted it. It just made it more difficult. When did you know that he was gay? Maybe a couple of years before he was diagnosed, maybe three years before. So that was in your 30s? Right, right. So I would have known or found out probably in my 
mid-20s. So you left home, and then you were living with your roommate, and then kind of just fast forward to you're in your 30s. When you were, and you find out that he's sick, that time in between, were you guys, did you see each other at family holidays? Were you kind of, were you part of each other's lives? Did you talk? Did you not talk? We would see each other during holidays. We never had a relation, you know, a real relationship. Of my four brothers, the one I was the closest to was actually the third one, who's 10 years my junior, and the youngest one. The first two, mm-mm. You just weren't close. No, Rob and I were not, and, and it goes back to that basic early anger. I was angry at him, he was angry at me, I guess probably because I was angry at him. And I think that actually the first three of us were the most dysfunctional, and we were just a big, dysfunctional, angry, I've always said Irish Catholic family, which I think a lot of, a lot of them used to be, probably still are. Where were you in your life when you found out that Rob was sick? Newly divorced, two years, now one year in to my divorce, two young children. I was working for Arthur Anderson, which was a godsend that I ended up there. But my divorce was difficult. It was almost more difficult than my marriage was. So you were going through some big changes in your own life. And oh yeah, where was Rob in his life when he got sick? What was he doing for work? Was he living close? Uh, he, he was with my parents at that point. He was living at home. I think he was working as a, the front desk clerk at a hotel. I, I'm not sure where he was. Prior to that, he had worked in supply chain at St. Thomas Hospital. And I don't remember, you know, when he, I don't, I don't remember if he got laid off, if he was fired, what the circumstances were, but he wound up at a hotel working the front desk when he was diagnosed. Who told you the news? I'm sure it was my mother would have told me. Did she say, do you remember what she specifically told you? Mm-mm. I just, just remember. Did she say that he was sick or that he actually had HIV AIDS? Do you remember if she, she told you that? I think they don't. She simply told me this, that he had donated blood and that they had contacted him about it. And at some point, I don't know when or where or how, I learned about his T cell count being really, really low. And I remember it was difficult to find doctors who were willing to take care of him. And one thing that I do remember, and I can't remember how far into it, I called his doctor. Actually, I think I found her and I begged her to give him something for his anxiety because it was over the top and they would not because it was addictive and I was so angry because what difference would it have made? He was terminally ill. So what if it was addictive? I just felt like it was so unmerciful. And that was kind of the attitude of the medical community at that point was that they were, I don't know, I think they they felt kind of unsympathetic towards, at least around here. And this was Vanderbilt, who I love, and that's who I go to, is Vanderbilt. Um, and that's where he ultimately died. But I was so angry at her. So if you were, you know, able to call his doctor, it sounds like you would have talked to him and you were kind of, you got close to him. I was around him enough at that point. 
I don't remember it really clearly. You know, I do remember the last time I saw him, I had gone up to see him in the hospital. And I, I did not go up there to see him every day. And he was in and out of the hospital a lot. And it's like I was on the sidelines trying to manage things. It's, it's what it, I'm trying to remember how all of this went. Because my mother actually even, during one of the times when he was going to the hospital, are going to be admitted, she decided to go spend time, I think it was in Arizona, to see my other brother. And I was just outraged, you know, that she would abandon him during this time. But she did. And one thing I learned, I can't remember if it was from my mother or if Daddy told me, when Rob was home at one point, and I'm not sure what he was suffering or dealing with right at that moment. But my dad got in bed with him and held him. Which was so compassionate. And that was also when nobody wanted to be near somebody with AIDS. They were afraid of him. And it revealed to me, a side of his personality that I had never witnessed or known was there, which goes back to the portrait that my mother had always painted of him. So anyhow. It's such a loving thing to do. Oh. And I mean, in such a painful situation. Absolutely. To have been able to see that love from your dad and see a new side of him. When he died, he was alone in the hospital. And I had been up to see him the night before. And my parents were there. Um, and what we know is that it was a pneumonia that had been brought on by the blastomycosis. He was having a hard time breathing, and they were offering him, I guess, morphine, because it would help him relax. But I also know that it suppresses breathing, and he kept turning it down and turning it down, and ultimately he told him yes, and he he died, you know, without a struggle, but also nobody was there. Do you remember, I'm guessing since you weren't there, you received a phone call? Mm -hmm. I remember, remember exactly, I was sitting at my dressing table getting ready to go to work, my mother called me. And all she said was, he died. I'm so sorry. They went to the funeral home. <clears throat> no, they didn't. I did all of it. That must have been so hard. I forgot. That must have taken so much to do that for him and for your family. I totally forgot. And I ugly cry too. <laughs> There's nothing cute about me. I always do the ugly cry. <laughs> I think it's really worth, worth those tears. God, I have forgotten. Had you talked with him about his final wishes or what he wanted? So you were going, talking to the funeral director, making all of those decisions just best as you could 
for him and for your family? Well, my parents knew that he wanted to be buried in Greentown, Indiana, where part of our family was and still lived. This little cemetery sits out on the side of a lake, and it's really very peaceful. And I know that's why he wanted that. And he's buried right in the middle of some of our very old family. And but anyhow, I chose the headstone and what to put on it. And you made your funeral arrangements. I, you know, I'm sure, Daddy, somebody had to have been with me when we went to the funeral home. I remember calling the funeral home because I remember telling them that he had AIDS, and they were like, thank you for letting us know. And I called the church and had the funeral mass set up. Damn, I had forgotten about all of that. You, you know, when it happens, you're just kind of, at least I do, I handle it. I just do it. I keep moving through it, and I'm not usually sitting around crying. I just do it. Where was the funeral? Was it here mm -hmm. where he, he passed? The funeral mass was at Cathedral, which has been a, it's a lot of my family history, I guess in that church since we moved here. Did Rob have a partner or a boyfriend or anyone he was in a relationship with? He did. And I never knew, I never met the guy. He did not come to the funeral. Or if he did, I was not aware of it, but I don't think he was there. So he wasn't there at the hospital as far as you knew? Like no. You had never no. met him. That was totally, it was just different back then. They're mm -hmm. just, we do know that on the morning that he died, apparently he tried to call his boyfriend, but could not speak. And all he heard was gasping, you know, so. So someone in the family had eventually talked to the, the I, boyfriend? Yes, but I don't know. You don't know who? I don't know if it was my mother. It was probably my mother, you know. Mm -hmm. What happened for you after he passed? After the funeral, after kind of, you know, you go through all that you have to do and take care of after someone dies. What happened for you then? I mean, life just went on for me. And it, at that point, life was dealing with a difficult ex-husband and having two young children. Megan would have been, I think Megan, I think they were like four and seven. Mm -hmm. No. And also, to add a little more color to this, we were losing people close to us, right and left, for about a five-year period, starting with my brother. And immediately following his death in April, Rob died in January, and in April, our neighbor, who was much beloved, dropped dead. So we had to deal with that also. It was in May that I developed a de debilitating panic disorder to the extent that I was having multiple panic attacks a day and mm. could not work for a month. I'm lucky that I held on to my job, or a job. Did you understand what was going on, like the first time you had a panic attack? No, no, I called. My son was best friends with a young man, or a kid, whose mother was a psychologist. And I knew her, you know, we, we talked all the time. And I called her the morning that I woke up in the middle of a panic attack. I woke up in the throes of one. 
and I called her and she got me in to see a psychiatrist that day and he got me, he medicated me and I was heavily medicated for about two weeks to get me stabilized and then did not go back into the office until 30 days later because I just couldn't handle it. And through that, and I was in addition to being on was Xanax, which will bring you down real fast. But I was on like five milligrams every four hours initially, an antidepressant also. And I can't remember exactly what I ended up on. He, he put me on Prozac at some point when then they kept moving me around because I wasn't tolerating them well. And I remember when he put me on Prozac, I seemed to be tolerating it well. And I came in one to one of our appointments and I think I was seeing him, I don't know, like every other day initially. I came in and said, you know, I had a dream last night where I, I have begun to understand the rationality of suicide. And he said, okay, don't take any more of the Prozac. Which I was like, oh, I'm not suicidal. I just simply... <laughs> so, but anyhow, I stayed on an antidepressant, I don't know how long, maybe two years after that. But over the course of all of that, in the, the first 12 months, I, had, I quit smoking, and I was a heavy smoker. I had to give up all caffeine. I had no tolerance for caffeine for years afterwards. And I learned from my doctor that panic disorder, which is pretty much fight or flight, out of control and your body is producing too much epinephrine, there are foods that actually promote it. And now my body was just so sensitive to anything that would stimulate it. I just, I had to really, really clean up my diet and keep things really simple. What motivated you to, to make those change, changes? Was it you didn't want to go back to having all of those panic attacks, I mean, that would kind of yes. be a logical thing. Yes, and actually what promoted the finally quitting smoking, which I had always wanted to do, but just couldn't get there. My doctor finally said, you're never, this medication is never really gonna be fully effective for you until you quit smoking. And this was five months later that I finally I went to a hypnotist actually, and and it worked for me. And one of the offshoots from that, which I always felt like I did something, my dad quit smoking a few months later after that. And he told my mom, he said, if Mary Kay can do it, I can do it. And he did it. So I inspired him to finally quit smoking. And of course, he's the one who inspired me to smoke because he had always been a smoker. Going through all of that, I never smoked again. have never had any desire to pick up a cigarette. So did you feel like having your panic disorder and then learning how to respond to it in the best way for you, do you feel like that kind of helped shift things within you or kind it of set you on a different path? Yeah, It well, it shifted me in changing my life, you know, I, I quit smoking. And it, the way I smoked, I was headed for dis disaster. I really was, because I was like between two and a half and three packs a day at the time that I quit, which is a lot. That is a lot. It's a whole lot. And I still wrestle with, I made the comment earlier, I eat my emotions. I was smoking my emotions. I have always had that under core of anxiety in my body, you know, from the time I was really young. That's just part of who I am. And I'm still wrestling that beast 
and while I have control for the most part, I wish that I had more control. Did you equate your brother's passing with your panic disorder or did they feel disconnected? I felt like it was all, that was a, the catalyst, I felt like. I don't, you know, there was also, that hit right as I was, and I haven't even mentioned this yet, right in a time of my life when I was going into perimenopause, perimenopause. I went through menopause really early. I stressed my way right into it. And it was later looking back at it that I realized that that was a period when I was entering it. And I recalled reading a book, really important book at that time for women called Passages. And she stated in that book that if you have not cleaned out your closet by the time you get to menopause, your closet is gonna come after you. And, and I sort of felt like that's what happened to me. Because I, during that period, I wound up not only working with a psychiatrist who was treating me chemically, I wound up in the hands of a psychologist who was amazing. And from the first time I went in to see him, and he was a retired Episcopalian priest who was also a recovering alcoholic. After our first session, he said, he looked at me and he said, who is the alcoholic in your family? And that was really when I began to examine my family and begin to try to understand what had been going on all of those years. And that was when I really began to look at my mother and the power that she had always had over all of us. I think I was probably the most impacted being the oldest and the girl I, you know she was my model mm -hmm. and that helped me I think a whole lot a whole whole lot what do you remember learning or healing through that work it sounds like the medication kind of helped stabilize you physically but then as you started looking at your family do you remember what you were learning or kind of what helped you find your way through to the other side of that? There's nothing specific, you know, that I can point to. It was just having my eyes opened, you know. It, it was the guiding hand of this psychologist who was able to pose questions to me about, well, what about this or that, that I finally began to understand some of the dynamics unhealthy dynamics that had been in my family. And I began to deal with some of them, which, you know, dealing with it also created a whole other can of worms with my mother once I began to push back, you know, on her and deal with all of that. Start to run interference for my dad and call her out for some of the things that she had been doing. You said you were the one who took care of handling your parents' things after they passed. Mm -hmm. How old were you when they, you don't have to tell me your age, but were you well into middle age when they passed? They died, mom died in October of 14. Daddy died January 08. We Somewhat moved, recently. Yes. We moved in together in June of... 2003. And it was something that we had, you know, I had kind of mentioned it to him, talked to him, not pressed him, but just threw it out there. I don't know, maybe 10 years before. And every once in a while it would come up. And I, I remember I went and looked at a house in Brentwood that was under construction. And I might have mentioned it to him, but I had never really pressed him. Mom called me one day. I remember I was standing in Kroger looking at meat. And 
and it was on a Sunday. All she said was, your dad's ready. We moved in in 2003. And actually, daddy died quickly. You know, it was, he had started exhibiting symptoms of Parkinson's. And I really had not put it all together. At that point, I wasn't deeply involved in going to the doctor mm -hmm. with them on a regular basis. They were still mobile. They were going out eating at fast food places all the time. And it was just right at, at the end that I had finally jumped in and was more involved. And then one Monday I was at work. He had not felt well that weekend. And I got a call at the office and mom said that, she said, your dad wants you to take him to the hospital. So I left and got home and he was in bad shape. He was still barely able to walk, but I got his clothes changed, got him out to the garage and then I couldn't get him in a car. And we had to call an ambulance and told him to take him to Vanderbilt, which they did. And as we were walking in, and Mom was with me, they were calling me from the emergency room saying that they wanted to intubate him then. And I said, oh my God, how do you get an 86-year-old man off of an intubator, mm -hmm. you know? So they said, well, we can do something else. So they put him on a, it's like a CPAP. It's the forced air. And finally, late in the afternoon, might have even been early evening, they got him into a room. And my brother from Arizona was on his way. And we hadn't been in the room very long. And Mom said, I want to go home which I thought was weird. So I took her home, I told him goodbye, and, and I told them to give me a call, you know, if anything happened. And my brother was gonna go straight to the hospital. And they really, I can't remember if they had told us at that point, I'm sure it was though, they must have told us that it was pneumonia, lower lobe pneumonia. And they did intubate him once I got him in the room. So I took mom home. Phone rang at four o'clock and they said, you need to come now. And my brother, actually, he said when he had gotten to the hospital, daddy was already asleep. Well, you know, it could have been he was already gone for, because when we got there, he was, they just simply had not turned off the machines. but. We called one of the pastors from their church. They went to a Presbyterian church and she met us there. And actually, we called my other two brothers. We had them on speakerphone, we prayed over him and they shut everything off. And we let him go. And I was devastated, it was so fast. <laughs> That sounds like that was very fast. He was okay over the weekend, even if he wasn't feeling well. Well, I knew he was sick, but it was, I felt like, in retrospect, it was like my antenna was not up at that point. I, I just didn't realize how fragile they are at 86, you know? I was left feeling like I had not, I don't want to say that I failed him because I don't think the outcome would have been any different. And actually he was so miserable, you know, that he, he did find some peace. But I stepped up my game significantly after he was gone. With your mom. So you have experienced, and you said you've experienced a couple very close family members passing. I have experienced a lot of, actually, and I hesitate, 
I had a dream before my brother died. I don't think he had even been diagnosed yet. But when I had this dream, I was sitting at a table like we are, facing someone, and I don't know who it was. I've always felt like it was my guardian angel or something. And all of a sudden, he, she leaned in and said, there's going to be seven deaths. And I remember I woke up. It was like, oh, you know, well, over a five-year period, there were seven deaths. This might be a strange question. You survived a lot of people around you passing. Did that change you in any way? Did it change how you looked at life? I mean, if there was a short amount of time where you just lost a lot of people in your life, did it change how you see death or how you saw your own life? Well, number one, when I had that dream, I didn't know that I was going to be part of that seven. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. Yeah. How does it affect me? For a while, my kids thought that funeral homes were just something we did on a regular basis, which was kind of sad for that period. I don't know. I, I had heard years before that life loss is just part of life because from the time you're born, it's a continuation or continually you're losing things. And that's just the way it is. I don't look at it as tragedy. What, what I have taken from all of this is, and the way I take all of life is, particularly the, the hard times, every event has presented me with opportunities for growth, expanding my awareness. I've always been able to pull something positive out of it. I've always been able to climb out of it. It's never really beaten me down. I mean, I guess that's all we can hope for. That's it's the you best know, we can hope for with, right. with the things that are painful that happen. When I developed that panic disorder and was struggling the first, especially the first week, oh my God, it was awful because I couldn't stand to be alone. My doctor was talking about wanting to put me in the hospital and I, no, you know, I, I could not do that because of my children. They are the thread that I hung on to. It was not wanting to break that, whatever. They kept they are what drove me to keep trying to get better. And I guess continue to. Well, it sounds like you have a close family. And that I know that they both, both of your children live nearby. And yeah. Your grandchildren do as well. If I can ask, and you <clears throat> don't have to share if you don't want to, what was your mom's passing like for you? You said there was a lot of contention, a lot of anger in that relationship. But you took care of her towards the end of her life. You know, it was so, well, and my mother had become so destructive as she aged, very manipulative. Um, she played to her audience. Uh, she created a lot of problems in the family. She really did. She, you know, there was, I'm talking about huge can of worms. Well, we got along fine. You know, we were not real touchy-feely with each other, but I, I took care of her, you know, and I, and I took good care of her. And we would bicker, but we would also communicate normally. But behind my back, and once in a while, I walked into a conversation that I would hear her having on the phone with family. You know, she would be, I don't want to say exactly deriding me, but I would, I would hear the results of that continuing deridement. I would hear it coming over the speakerphone. So I had to 
contend with that. And I still do contend with it because I'm pretty much estranged from my younger brother and his, his wife at this point and have been for a number of years. And she caused that. How did your mom pass? Was it slow? Was it sudden? It was a slow, she was 90 when she died. And the last two and a half years, it was, she started falling and she had a whole laundry list of things that were wrong with her. Ultimately, I feel like what killed her was osteoporosis. She had broken her ankle and they had put plates and everything in her ankle, but she was not very mobile. And what ultimately got her was um, it was in August, middle of August of 14. I had gone in to her room to get her ready for bed, and she went to stand up. And I heard these two really loud cracks. Mm. And she went down. And the thing that was, I had noticed that her ankles were looking really slim, you know. It never registered, you know, that it was the bone was getting so frail and it was bad it was a bad break my phone was not in the room and as i was rushing to get to my phone i was just screaming in my head you know because i knew that this was bad but anyhow so she went to the hospital they would not do surgery on her because of her laundry list of, she had pulmonary hypertension. Mm. She had, she was in the early stages of kidney failure. So they set her leg. And after six weeks, there was no healing at all. Mm. That must have been so painful. She was, I realize now, that's when the process of her dying really started. You know, nobody would touch her surgically. The anesthesiologist wouldn't touch her. So, you know, they cast her again and sent her back to the rehab place. I'm trying to think. I don't think she'd even been there for 72 hours. And they called me one day and said, they sent her back to Vanderbilt. And it was Labor Day. And I can remember sitting in there and they came in and said she has pancreatitis. And I said, so what does this mean? And they said, you probably need to call family. So I did. Everybody came in. And she went through it well enough that they, rather than discharging her immediately after, they moved her to palliative care which I remember looking at her as we were going down the hall and going into this area. She's looking around, and I thought then, she's like, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. They didn't keep her very long. I don't think she was in there more than five days. And they discharged her back to NHC. And it was there that she finally passed. I think she was... I want to say she was probably in the hospital for almost a month after they diagnosed the pancreatitis. So you had more time with your mom to prepare than with your dad, for oh, yeah. sure. Oh, for sure. It was years. How did you feel when she, when she passed? Conflicted, I guess. Kind of relieved. I had more grief when Daddy died. Daddy was my champion. When she died, I was in the midst of all the destruction that she had wrecked in the last few years of her life. 
and I still struggle with it. You know, I I miss her, but there's never been any great grieving, you know, for her. I still go through moments of thinking, I need to call mom, you know. It was a very screwed up relationship for years. It sounds like there was a lot mm-hmm. between you. You still struggle took, with. <laughs> you still offered all that love and taking care I of her. I offered all that responsibility, sense of responsibility is what it was. Is that what it was? It was, I guess, love. I never felt like I really knew her or understood her. I guess because she never understood herself. Her father left her mother when mom was 17. And there was so much anger and resentment that I felt like she carried that into her marriage. And she never could get to a point where she could let it go and forgive him. Even when I tried to explain to her it's about you, you know. And even on her deathbed, a couple of days before she died, I said, what are you going to do? You know, if he's the first that you see when you cross over, are you not going to forgive him? She said, no, she just cannot. Well. Did you see the effect that Rob's death had on your mom? She had a hard time with her dad leaving. I don't don't know your mom, obviously, but mm-hmm. you know her son, who, from what you said, was kind of her favorite. When he died early, do you know how that impacted her? Or did she not really share? I don't think she really showed it. I, the one thing that stands out to me that I don't remember which day this was. I mean, it was right in the immediate aftermath, but I don't remember how quickly. But I went up and embraced her, really held her as she was sobbing, and ultimately she just pushed me away. Mm. I've never understood her. Her sister, who I was fairly close to, and we shared a lot, she was able to talk to me about mom. And she told me, she said she sort of felt like "Mm, mom just loves babies. She said she doesn't know what to do with you guys when you're growing up. And I, I kind of think that was true. She likes babies. Well, as someone who has experienced the loss of siblings and your parents, what would you tell other people who are facing that? Obviously, every passing is different, but is there anything that you would offer to someone who's just about to face something similar? The only thing that, you know, I can offer that I know is there, even in the darkest part of it, is there's an opportunity for growth. You just have to be open to it and seize it, you know, when when it presents itself. And it will. I believe that, too. What would you say to someone who's struggling with panic disorder or panic attacks? I would just say it will get better. But you have to believe it's going to get better. You have to find that anchor for yourself and and hang on to it. But it will get better. And you have to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah. So, I don't know, that's... It's my experience.
one screwed up life. Every life is its own story with its own ups and downs. No, I know so many people that seems like they've just had these relatively calm lives. And, you know, I feel like I am still dealing with the wreckage of the dysfunction that I grew up in. You know, I never remarried. Obviously, early on, well, not obviously, because you don't know what he was doing. My ex-husband made it very difficult for me to see anybody and get serious about him. And I put my children first, mm -hmm. and I was not going to subject them to that. I did not want that kind of, those kind of problems in my life for me or for them. And so I finally just said, you know, I'll wait till they're up and out, and then I'll maybe think about it. And then when they were up and out and I started thinking about it, it's like, oh, these are all old men. <laughs> but I have also learned about myself is I tend to pick people apart. The men that I have started to let close, I'll pick them apart. Do you know why? I don't know. Because that's what was modeled for me. I don't know. There's something so honest in being able to say that, though, and to see that. Doesn't make me any happier. You know, it, it would have been nice to have a companion that I could be happy with, you know, going through isolation. That was, that was when I really acutely been able, I was able to feel that. But at the same time, I would have hated to be in a relationship where I was miserable. Yeah. I'm so grateful for what you've shared. I'm grateful for your honesty and openness and willingness to share. It's like, what are you going to do with this? <laughs> one last question. <laughs> what is one thing you truly love about yourself? Oh, God. You're asking the wrong person, because I've always been so incredibly hard on myself. I can't answer it, which is terrible. About, you know, I could say I love the fact that I have four grandchildren because of me, ultimately. I mean, it was because of me that they're here, but that's not the answer you're looking for. Is that any answer you want to give? I don't know. I get, a shallow answer would have been, I used to have beautiful auburn hair. And, and I like my eyes. That's it. You have very nice eyes. <laughs> They went with my beautiful auburn hair for years, and now it's just white hair with green eyes. But one of my granddaughters has my hair, which has really been fun. I can't even imagine. And she has part of my name. Her name is Ellie Catherine. So the fact that she wound up with the hair is double joy and she's a handful too so i've sort of felt like okay <laughs> a lot of her reminds me of me we'll see how that goes as it continues on but i think she's got more support than i did better support she has you well she has me but i think she has a better mother um and father, actually. I'm not going to say that my dad was not a good father, but my kids are much more hands-on than my parents were. And I, I think that might have just been the way things were then, but I can't imagine 
not being able to keep my hands off of my kids, you know, we were not touched a whole lot, you know, not told that we were loved a whole lot, ever, really. It's just different, you know. I'm much handier even with my grandchildren than my grandparents were with me. And I don't know if it's just a different era or... Could be. I think also we try to carry forward the things that were good to us or maybe if there were things that we didn't have, we want to pass those along. Yeah. I sounds like I touch and hug and let them know how important they are. Thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Feel free to leave a comment about this conversation, maybe what you're taking with you from it. Make sure to check out the other conversations if you haven't already too. You can also send me a message if you have a story to share. I'd love to hear it. I'll be working on a new series soon and you could be a part of it. Sending good your way. Until next time, take good care.